Welcome to ADRA, Voices from the Field. This sustainable agriculture podcast is presented by the National Center for Appropriate Technologies ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program with support from the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service. Hi, this is Rich Myers with NCAT. In this episode, Andrew Coggins, director of the National Center for Appropriate Technologies Rocky Mountain West office, has a conversation with farm manager John Wallace about the unusual growing season so far at NCAT's SIFT farm. SIFT, or Small Scale Intensive Farm Training Program, aims to help communities increase their food security by producing their own healthy food. Both Andrew and John work out of Butte, Montana. SIFT, with NCAT, has a working, sustainably managed demonstration farm on five acres at NCAT's Butte office. The farm is the center of a program that teaches farmers and future farmers, urban food producers, community leaders, and citizens how to produce high-value, nutrient-rich food on small parcels of land, and, in Butte's case, in a challenging climate. This year, The Butte farm site has endured a heavy spring snow and subsequent high winds, in addition to the COVID-19 pandemic. John talks about how the farm has reacted, both in production and in its community associations. After the podcast, please take a few minutes to complete a survey. We really value your feedback to help us make our podcast better. The link is in the notes below. Let's listen. Hello, good afternoon. My name is Sir Andrew Coggins, and I'm the regional manager for the Rocky Mountain West region of NCAT, which is the National Centre for Appropriate Technology. And today I'll be talking to John Wallace, the manager of the SIF farm, also at NCAT, based here in Butte. Uh, SIF standing for Small Intensive Farm Training. So today we'll be checking in with John uh, on the SIF farm uh, to see how we are doing currently in the situation. So good afternoon, John. Hey Andrew, thank you for having me. So it's um, this year has been a year that's been very different than other operating years for many reasons. So what are the same some of the main obstacles you think you've had to overcome this year, John? Well, Andrew, there's been a few obstacles. Um, you know, as as big as the obvious one is uh, this year with COVID, uh, we've actually had a lot of extreme weather incidents here and. You know, I always joke with everybody. I always say, you know, don't put your your warm season plants outside until June 8th. And sure enough, on June 8th, we ended up with eight (laughs) inches of snow on the ground with over a 50% water quantity. So that was enough to break the branches on lilac trees, destroy power lines around town. And had we been any further ahead, I think we would have come across a lot of other challenges. Uh, Luckily, you know, this is not my first rodeo. And I've, like I said, I've always been saying June 8th, watch out for a big frost. I never expected that much snow. So that being said, if we had peas that had been trellised, they would have been toppled. If we had any other plants out there that would have been susceptible to frost, it would have been gone. And this is June 8th. And so this is just Mm. the start of our year. And so when we look at that, uh, we plan for those days uh, we're really looking at the, the growing season and, and the days to, ma- to maturity. Oh, mm-hmm. It didn't help because following that came two more subsequent frosts. Um, it seems that Butte can still surprise everyone with the weather sometimes. 
Oh, it can it can surprise anybody, and even though we we expect for it, it is it's strange to see these types of um, very strong uh, water content <laughs> storms that come yeah. through, because you know eight inches in the middle of winter could have looked more like two feet, and so when we're putting that amount of weight on the plants, we're we're really putting damage on everything. It's been great for the soil, however, because it's mm-hmm. kept uh, soil temperatures constant and it put a lot of moisture into the ground. Um, but if that hadn't come with 70 mile per hour winds a week later and put power outages around the whole state, then we probably would have been doing a little bit better. Uh, some of those um, came from the south. And as we all know, here at this latitude, all of our greenhouses face south. And so when we get 70 mile an hour gusts from the south, it's really damaging to those, uh, the poly panels that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, help insulate our greenhouses. So we lost a few. Um, We we repaired them. Um, I think damage was minimal other than the actual power going out. But those are some of the things that we deal with on a regular basis that we just have to be prepared for. Because whether it's June, July, August, we really do expect potentially a a frost at some point and that's why we really work so hard with the season extension tools and we're really lucky this year we finally completed two of our nrcs uh, greenhouses that we got through an equip grant Um, these things are very substantial as far as being able to take wind and hold heat in Um, as well uh, they're large enough and they vent air well that they don't turn into ovens so we've been really successful with that Um, one of them we were able to get a really early seeding on and we were able to produce lots of arugula, lettuce, kohlrabi, bok choy, uh, radish, kale. And this was a substantial amount. It's probably one of the biggest harvests we've ever had this early, uh, that large and successful. So that was, that was a major success. So even though we expect these extreme weather factors, we really do prepare for them. And we don't take mm-hmm. it with a grain of salt. Uh, we we do expect that, you know, it's it's not really a safe climate. Three A, which would, zone three A would be what, what we're classified as, and um, yeah, and that's really not a safe climate to just necessarily put tomatoes and cucumbers and squash um, outside. No. So we really do work very heavily on those types of um, season extension tools and testing right. to see how they work in this region. Um, Another big thing, you know, resulting of that snow and wind is we lost all of our pollinators. Uh, it was about right before June 8th. We, we get a lot of flowers in at least my own personal yard. And um, we, we saw these bees buzzing around. And as soon as that came around and it crushed all the lilacs, they were gone. And I didn't see them for over a month. And that being nice. said, um, you know, with no pollinators, you're really putting pressure on your crop. Um, how are you going to get them there? And that's something we've always focused on on the farm. So, therefore, we've we've planted sunflowers, hollyhocks, poppies. Uh, we do a lot of phacelia in our cover crops, and that's a good pollinator. That's a really great pollinator. And I'd hate to say this, but, um, you know, we let some things go just to try to bring in extra flowers. So, arugula, uh, mustard, and even dandelions and knapweed, sadly to say, we've we've kind of let been growing up until this point because we didn't see any of those types of flowers that bring in those pollinators, and we were trying to coax them in. But you know, it's been a late season. We've we've now since had um, sunflowers blooming, and 
it's it's amazing to see how many pollinators have resulted be, just because of that. And that and the phacelia. So the sunflowers and the phacelia have really brought the bugs back in. We're seeing ample um, pollinators uh, now, which is we're, we're into August now. And when we were seeing them at the beginning of June, they disappeared for a while and they've finally been coming back in. But that's good, good news for our tomatoes, for our cucumbers and for everything, our beans that need really good poll- pollination. So that's been coming right. up very strong. And then as well, the obvious part. Yeah, sorry. What's that? I was going to say as well, John, it seems that, like you say, you've been making um, alternate plans by using some of the weeds that normally uh, we clear from the areas or you clear from the areas. Right. As a Right. You know, it's it's a a difficult decision sometimes when you know you need to go in and uh, mow an area between two crops, knowing you could Mm. potentially be putting seed into that crop. But at the same time, all the flowers and the wildflowers and everything naturally occurring within there is the habitat. So we've really held off on that this year. We try to keep a lot of it unmowed and let it just grow naturally up until a certain point, knowing we're potentially going to put seeds out there. Um, But when you see no pollinators, it's a scary, scary thought to think that, well, you know, you got to pick one loss. And I think that... um, having extra seeds in an area might be a better loss than having no pollinators or no habitat for pollinators. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially in the yeah. condition we're at with, with bee populations, especially in Montana. So, But presumably as well, John, with these pollinators, um, the, the wild ones like knapweed, that's not really a problem because they're growing in areas, I assume, where you're not going to plan to grow things anyway. So they don't compete too much. With growing well, they're areas. not, they're not. And it's interesting because we back up against a piece of land that is natural and I've never seen these seeds blow into there, but it is, it's our civic duty to make sure noxious weeds don't grow around. And, and, you know, we do sure, try to yeah. limit them as most as possible, mm-hmm. but we do want to make sure we're not just running a mower and spreading over seeds in, in the fact that you know, you're taking care of a piece of property and you know that if this has a negative Im- impact on your property, then you want to try to take at least the positive out of it. And if that means bringing in the bees, and I'll take that any day. So. It's a balancing yeah. act, isn't it? It is. Yes, it is. I mean, we do everything we can to get rid of napweed around here, but it's it seems to be uh, coming into the places that we we kind of work on every day, the places we mow, the places we run equipment on. We trample mm-hmm. on. That's where it comes in. Where it's not coming in is where we grow, and obviously not the natural area behind us. It, it seems to be overtaken by the prairie behind there. So that's a positive right. sign as far as uh, you know. Really focusing on what what the the good natural crops are and how they can compete out of these noxious crops. So. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and and one of the other big things I wanted to just discuss was um, the big obstacle. Obviously, looming over is how COVID's been impacting our workshops, our donation cycle, and it's been very interesting for me being kind of part of the local food chain. Um, you know, we we typically donate a lot of our produce that we grow on farm to the food bank. Um, mm-hmm. At the beginning of the season, that was kind of an issue because um, there's been these government uh, boxes coming in, um, purchased by the government and and distributed through the food bank system. And they are full of fresh greens, which is great. And it's great. And it it basically exemplifies the fact that there's not much of a food shortage. It's a disruption of 
a lot of the food chain principles. So anything that needs to be processed has been running to issues like potatoes and oranges uh, and mm. things like that. Whereas, you know, fresh greens um, were that the, they are available and there's been more than they can actually distribute within right, our John, I've noticed, Yeah. I, I mean, I've noticed too, John, that there's, there's, there's not, it's not a simplistic answer to, um, to food shortages or food oversupply. There's a mixture of both. Certain foods, as you say, is, are oversupplied. And, and yeah, foods you know, and I've been getting much- down to the bottom of that. We're going to leave some of that for, for a second discussion too, because I, mm. it really seems to have a lot to do with um, extra processing and weight and value. Right. And that's something I'd like yeah. to get into a little bit later. But um, um, for the most part, what I've been understanding is that there is not really a shortage of food. It's relying on certain distribution techniques um, to get the food to where it needs to go. And that's something I've been helping with, um, you know, trying to overcome those factors, which is exactly what we're here for. We've been working with the Butte Mutual Food Aid Network. Uh, They've been actually taking in requests for people who need food, and we connect them either with these programs or I've even personally self-delivered food to these people. Uh, We've been working in um, a lot of different dynamics of figuring out where the food needs to go, what there is, and how can we help. Uh, For instance, one one other uh, place that's, because we used to give donations out um, to the, uh, it was the Senior Center. And the Senior Center is closed right now during COVID for obvious reasons and risks. And the people who used to come to the Senior Center we're very reliant on some of the fresh foods that were served there. And we've been able to coordinate through them and through the Continental Continental Gardens um, Senior Home and actually work out ways to distribute fresh greens, all these excess things that the food bank wouldn't take, bok choy, I've even got them some microgreens, squash, peas, beans, and it's been a great success knowing that food is medicine and what our goal is, is to get food to where it needs to go. Um, speaking on that just a little bit more too, I would also like to point out that, you know, not being able to have that many people on a farm in one location, we're obviously able to spread out outside and, and, and keep limited groups, but we've use that as an opportunity to break into a lot of different other, you know, types of uh, partnerships with different organizations. Um, we've been able to reach out to the Four Seas Butte, uh, which is a child care providers uh, organization who works with education for child care providers to help them with all kinds of educational benefits for kids. Um, but one of the most important things to me is when you're working with child care providers, you're working with the people who cook food for children every day. And, and working with them on what is healthy, what is available, what is local, what can they do to learn to grow it, that's something we've been really focusing on. So we've brought them into the mix. We've had a lot of child care providers come to the farm. We've had them you know, educated in what can grow well here, how to do it. So thanks for the update, John, on the many ways that the uh, SIF farmers cope with all the challenges and COVID-19 up to this point, both on and off the farm. Um, and I hope that the remainder of summer 
is successful for you. And I'm sure that Butte's very grateful for the work you're doing with the community at this time. Oh, it's been great. I've gotten ample feedback from the community, just letting us know that they, they feel that the work we're doing is very valuable. And I, I hope to be back and talk about a few other things, especially with supply chain and other issues I've seen in the local community. Thanks for listening to ATRA, Voices from the Field. Please share this podcast if you can, and take a moment to leave a comment and subscribe. This really helps us to get the word out about our sustainable agriculture programs. Also, don't forget to take a few minutes to complete the survey to let us know what you thought of the podcast. We do appreciate it. For more information on this topic, you can contact John Wallace directly via email at johnw at incat.org. And check out all of our sustainable agriculture resources at the ATRA website, www.atra.incat.org. The links are in the notes that accompany this podcast. We'll catch you next week. And until then, keep on farming.